Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi again, everybody, and welcome to Give Them the Sports Biz. Dan Avone in beautiful, sunny San Francisco. Joined, like always, with the NFL agent representing the East Coast. How's the weather out in New York? Sunny out here, too, man. It's beautiful out here, and we've got some spring and hopefully some sports soon. Spring is in the air, indeed, and with that, that usually means the start of the baseball season, which obviously we are behind and it's never going to start on time, just like everything else in terms of professional sports. But they are moving ever so closely to getting this baseball season salvaged. They just recently came out with this 10-page documentary and all these rules that are in place and the new sort of edict that both umpires, players, and everybody is going to have to follow to a T in order to pull this thing off. Players will then be quarantined for upwards to two to three months, and then voila, we may eventually have and salvage this 2020 unusual baseball campaign. However, when it gets to salary, there is some discrepancy here, and as far as the players are concerned and as far as the owners, there are two differing sides here, and it primarily all sort of is a result of this 50-50 revenue split for the 2020 season. And, Maddie, let's just sort of walk through some of the major issues that the players have with this proposed split. And we'll start at the top with the players already agreed to reduced salaries. Can you explain that a little bit further? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, basically, you know, with the salaries, uh, the structure, you know, is, is over the course of 162 game season, which, you know, everyone knows is that's traditional. Um, so what the players already agreed to probably like late March, maybe early April, and we've talked about it on a couple other shows is, um, they agreed to prorate their salaries. Um, that was part of the Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball Players Association, the agreement that covered the draft, service time, salary advances, uh, things of that nature. Um, so, you know, the draft, you know, shortened from 40 rounds to five rounds. Um, you know, only $100,000 will be paid out to players this year um, with the deferrals going to 2021 and 2022. Um, so current MLB players – um, this kind of went into their service time and their, you know, their salary advance. Um, the players as a collective um, got a $170 million advance spread over two months. Um, and that would then allow their salaries to be prorated for the season, uh, depending if that was, you know, that was back, you know, now a month and a half ago. So, you know, it could have been 140 games, 120 games. Most likely, you know, we're going to be looking at, you know, you know, 80, 82 games, something in that range. Um, so that is how the salary will then be, you know, constructed, um, prorated over those, you know, those 82 games uh, rather than their 162. Um, so basically, you know, since they already agreed to it, you know, they're not going to agree to, you know, more reductions, uh, reducing salaries, um, you know, even further. Um, so that's, you know, certainly a, uh, you know, a big kind of hiccup right there. Um, and then you also talked a little bit about the revenue split and the 50, 50. Um, I think that's what you're, you already uh, getting towards, right, Dan? Yeah. The 50, 50 split. Yeah. And, you know, kind of the same thing. Um, you know, major league baseball, you know, we all love it because there's no salary cap in there. Um, you know, it's why players love it. It's why players sign, you know, $300 million deals over 13 years. Uh, and why you can have, you know, massive stars with these huge contracts on teams like the Dodgers, Yankees, Boston, Red Sox. Um, and why you probably have some dynasties, you know, building up too, but you know, something that, 
the owners, you know, have been trying to sneak in there is this 50, 50 revenue split. Um, and usually, um, when there's, you know, uh, you know, since they've never used, um, a revenue split in the past, um, because different markets are, are so, so different in terms of revenue earned, you have, you know, like the New York Yankees with yes network, the Dodgers have their own network. The Red Sox have Neeson, the Cubs have WGM. So you have all these different, um, regional networks where, where teams are earning money, but then you also have, you know, concessions, merchandise, you know, ticket sales, uh, the gates, um, of all these, um, different teams throughout the country, um, where, you know, that goes to the team directly. It's not as if it was the NFL, uh, with their television revenue. Um, so, you know, a, a split usually leads to a salary cap and, you know, major league baseball, the players association have never wanted a salary cap. The owners have obviously tried to sneak that in for years. Um, and you really can't do that. Um, you know, that's been agreed upon in the CBA. Um, there isn't a salary cap there, you know, there should not be a salary cap. Um, so really, um, you'd be asking the players, you know, to basically agree to a, you know, a revenue system that, um, you know, they've never been, you know, they never agreed to in the past. Um, also, you know, I think the other way you look at it is if, look, if you're asking the players, you know, to see a reduction, um, in pay this year in 2020, um, you know, why aren't they seeing, seeing increases, you know, in the years prior, um, and then, you know, the years while you recover from the coronavirus, um, in 2021, 2022, and, and hopefully further future seasons, um, because then the revenue will be coming back up. So um, I think, yeah, the owners are, are pretty, you know, far off base there. And when you talk about a salary cap, let's face it, and we've mentioned this as well, when you talk about players union and forget about the CBA and forget about just being relegated to sports, when you talk about the Major League Baseball Players Union, it is one of the strongest one of the strongest unions right across the board in the United States. And as it, as it pertains to sports and baseball, comparatively speaking to that of basketball and football, the major sports here in the United States, baseball has always been envious of that of, of NBA basketball players or envious of that of, of major league baseball players. And same with that of the NFL, because a, they have guaranteed contracts, the MLB, or excuse me, the NBA does as well, but not to the extent like that of MLB. And there is no salary cap. And I repeat, there is no salary cap in Major League Baseball. That has been the big caveat. That has been the big hook for years that distinguishes themselves from the other professional sports in the United States. And again, it's one of the reasons why they have one of the strongest unions, because they won't let Major League Baseball touch that. And so I think that even mentioning, even if it's just for three months, even if it's just for the shortened season, that they're in some sort of a salary cap relationship, that this potentially could be opening Pandora's box and getting into an area where they can never get out of this and never go back to the way things, things were in terms of not having a salary cap. Do you yeah. think that could be part of the thinking overall when it comes to the Major League Baseball players and their union? Yeah. And, and basically, yeah, I mean, what you're doing, you know, when you have a split salary, when you have a revenue split, um, if they were, you know, if they were only going to do it in, two, in 2020, then like I said before, you know, the players won't benefit, you know, in years prior and then years afterwards. And if they want to continue with a revenue split, um, you know, you're basically tying player salary to um, the revenues, you know, the revenue that, which is done in the NFL and the NBA, where there are, 
you know, currently hard, what you would call quote unquote hard salary caps, you know, major league baseball, they have the luxury tax where if you're over it, you know, you're basically, um, you're, you know, you're paying, you know, other teams, you know, their, their luxury tax, you know, the Yankees have done it for years, the Dodgers, the, the Red Sox have paid the nationals, the, the, the Rays over years, um, you know, teams that are, you know, significantly under it. But if you're in a tie, you know, that's, that's where it comes in when you're tying, you know, total revenue, um, to, you know, uh, to salaries that basically makes the cap hard and, you know, makes it a strong cap and you can't go above it. So it essentially, you know, creates a salary cap without ever saying, Hey, we're going to create a salary cap here. The third thing that major league baseball players say that this is one of the third reason why they would not be in favor of a 50-50 split is determining revenues is complicated. And essentially what they're alluding to there is that Major League Baseball teams will hide a lot of revenues because there are so many arteries, right, Matt? Maybe you can break that down. There are so many streams in terms of making money, whether it's regional deals, whether it's ballparks, that it's difficult when you're talking about their revenue deciding or determining how much exactly they make is not something that the MLB has ever been very transparent about. No, no. And owners, look, owners aren't going to open up their books completely and fully, um, right? So players can share in that. So owners have always said, hey, look, you know what? Yeah, sure. We'll, you know, we'll equally share in certain revenues, right? Um, That usually what they say is they, they are, you know, the most directly related to the game on the field. Um, But, you know, look, one of the owner's major um, revenue models is, is parking, concessions, merchandise, ticket sales. Um, yeah, they don't directly relate, you know, to the product on the field. Um, sponsorship, you know, when you go to a baseball game, you know, you're going to see, you know, the Budweiser sign and, you know, the, the MetLife blimp um, and, you know, uh, you know, what else, you know, Pepsi or, you know, um, you know, Verizon all on the, uh, you know, on the outfield wall or, you know, on the, on the wall behind the outfield wall. Um, so those are all sponsorships. Yeah. They don't exactly, um, directly relate to the game on the field. Um, and you know, owners aren't willing to just open up their books, um, and show, you know, those revenues, um, or let players share in those revenues. Um, you know, so, you know, it could be, look, you know what, we're going to let players share in you know, some of the television network revenue. Right. And we just talked about it before that, that, you know, each market is very, very different. Um, you're talking about, you know, New York compared to Kansas City. You know, those regional networks are, are completely different. Um, you know, even in New York and, you know, Boston could, you know, could have some differences. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the revenue, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, uh, way to determine revenue, um, the formula to put it together is very, very different. Um, it's, there's a lot of revenues that are not just tied to what you would call game day revenues. Um, so I think, um, the players, um, knowing the owners and the players association, knowing the owners more importantly, knows they're never going to fully open their books and comply with what the players, um, are looking to see. And that leads to the fourth reason why major league baseball players are not in favor of this revenue split and, that is, you can't trust MLB's claims. And essentially just saying that, you know, they've lied before and they don't have a strong history in terms of us, of them being forthright and going forward. Also, I think it's, it's worth noting here that Major League Baseball is not obligated to, and I'm reading this here and I just lost my spot. 
to take another five major league base, are almost without exemption not publicly traded entities. Yeah, that's, private. It's a private. That's important company. to know. They're not publicly traded entities, and what that means is that they're under no obligation to truthfully disclose revenues, profits, losses, and so on. And so, not surprisingly, MLB owners have a long history of sort of shading these matters. And that, I mean, that's okay, I suppose. It's never okay, but I mean, if you're not, you know, if you're not bound because you're not a publicly traded entity, you can do what you please. But if we're talking about a 50-50 split, then there has to be some level of trust. And Major League Baseball is not necessarily, at least historically, something that I think MLB baseball players feel as though they, they have any sort of trust in. No. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is going back. I mean, you know, people remember, I remember certainly the, the, the strike in 1994 um, and certainly strikes or possible um, player strikes um, when they've talked about negotiating CBAs that, you know, major league baseball has had labor peace since then. Um, but one of the things that that's always come up and comes up when these negotiations go on are, you know, are the owners going to open up their books um, and show us exactly what it is. And, you know, the reason why they don't have to is you just said it, you know, they're, they're private. Um, they're not publicly traded entities. Um, they don't have, you know, the obligation to disclose their revenues, losses, profits, um, you know, things of that nature um, in an honest capacity, you know, which is kind of crazy when you think about that, um, you know, cause we're the ones going to games, supporting them, paying money, you know, for tickets, hot dogs, parking, you know, jerseys, t-shirts, you know, everything of the like. Um, so, so certainly, um, you know, major league baseball, the player association has always had this reaction, um, you know, going back as far as I can remember, like I said, to 94, when there was the, you know, the, the strike, the strike shortened season, um, you know, this, this is not anything new, um, for the players association, um, to deal with. And they are, like you said, one of the strongest unions out there, not just sports wise, but just unions in the country. Um, so, you know, that's something that they, they are well on top of. And the fifth reason that the players are not, they're not in favor of this revenue split is the players are taking all the risk. And essentially what that means is that MLB, listen, they, they, they have a, the MLB owners have come to expect profit without risk. And these guys make, let's, let's just, you know, look, it's good to be an owner, man. And nobody's, nobody's knocking these guys. I mean, they put in their time and they're captains of industry and have, have been awarded and have earned their right to, to own a baseball team, obviously. And they're, the appreciation rate for these franchises, these guys make money every year. Their franchises just go up in terms of value. But Major League Baseball players are saying, hey, listen, we're the ones taking the risk because we literally are putting our lives on the line in the midst of this COVID-19 and a virus that isn't going away. We have no idea really how to contain this thing, yet we're on the baseball field. We're physically out there playing the game in the midst of this pandemic. And again, the risk is something that we're dealing with and you're not. So how is that equitable in any way? Yeah. I mean, the people, the people at risk are, are those in every sport, right? You know, game day workers, um, the players, obviously coaches, um, staff, EMS that are at the, you know, at the venue, especially if there's not fans there, um, fans are not taking a risk. Um, you know, I know major league baseball has said players will be sitting, you know, in the, in the bleachers, essentially not bleachers, but in the seats that, you know, people would normally be seated, seated in, um, you know, to, spread out um, to, you know, practice the social distancing as much as possible. But this goes to everything. This goes to health and safety that, you know, so many different players associations have, have fought back against in recent years. 
whether that's, you know, injury, um, you know, facilities, training facilities, uh, travel accommodations, you know, things of that nature um, that different players association have talked about, you know, health and safety is, is obviously the biggest one, you know, you're going to be, if you're a player and you're, you know, playing for the New York Yankees um, and you're going to go down and play the Baltimore Orioles, you're going to stay in a hotel, you're going to travel there. You're going to come in contact with people at that hotel. You're going to come in contact with people when you travel. Um, Those people at that hotel or restaurant or um, whether it's a plane or train or bus, whatever it might be, they're going to go home to their families. They're going to come in contact with other people. Um, So yeah, it's not the owners taking that risk. Um, It's the players, it's the workers, it's the coaching staff. um, It's the the, the traveling parties, um, the media um, who are all, you know, taking that risk on, which is um, very different than an owner taking a risk on. One thing that either side cannot afford to get into, in my estimation, especially in this current climate, this can't get ugly. This can't get to a point where we're reading about it and it's dominating the headlines. And it's, we've seen this before. It's bad enough in a regular season when we're not in the midst of a coronavirus and players will walk out or get locked out or strike. That's never, never Nobody really wins in terms of players and owners because it's just a bad marketing ploy for the rest of the country, right? Everybody else or the rest of the world that views your, that enjoys your sport. But when you stop providing your sport to the people that enjoy it and it becomes a money, a money issue and you're, you're battling revenue for essentially millionaires and billionaires. If you, you, I'm sure we've heard that phrase before. Mm -hmm. It's never a good PR. It's never good for marketing. It's never good branding for the sport. And especially you accentuate that in times that times 20, we're in the midst of this pandemic. And there's so many other things that people have to worry about getting food for their kids, how they're going to get from day to day. What about their jobs, security in life. And if this becomes more public where you have more dissension between the owners and the players not wanting to play because of revenue. That's just something that's not going to bode well for either side. No, no. I mean, anytime, look, you know, even going back to the strike in 94, um, you know, the players were always the ones that were blamed. It wasn't the owners. Um, I, you know, I remember that clearly. Um, and obviously that was over, you know, economic reasons as well. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter if the players were hundred percent correct. Um, you know, they, you know, obviously had, they had replacing players for a period of time as well. Um, if you look back to other players associations and, you know, leagues that, you know, had lockouts or had strike you know, the NHL is still trying to come back, you know, and, and kind of recreate um, their magic from, you know, before they went on, on two different uh, lockouts. Um, the NBA, you know, they had their, their strike shortened season in, in 99 and had another one in 11, um, you know, and, and, the MBPA was smart at that time. They, they, they basically said, you know, to their players, look, you know, if you're going to give interviews, if you're going to talk, you know, don't talk about the pay. Um, you know, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't put that out there in the public because for the players, it's just a bad look. The optics are never going to be good for them. Um, it's never going to come back and say, Oh, these guys are, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I can't wait to see these guys back in the field now. Um, you know, it was just, you know, it was always a bad thing, you know, going back to that in, in 94 uh, with the players. So, um, you know, when it's the billionaire. One versus, side is justified and the other isn't. It's just a bad look overall. Yeah. And and yeah. And, and now it's even a bad look. You know, the outfits are even even, te- you know, worse now because you have, you know, these two groups of individuals. You know, the game has grown so much, you know, in 25 years. Um, 
but you still have, you know, these two groups of individuals, very wealthy individuals, you know, arguing over, you know, this money when the rest of the country is going through this problem. Um, and look, all eyes are on, you know, all the eyes of the sports industry are on major league baseball, the NBA, I guess a little bit, the NHL, um, and the NFL is certainly, you know, eyeing all these leagues as well as, all right, look, this is, you know, this is what they did correctly. This is what they did incorrectly. Um, this is how we can pivot and, you know, you know, change a, the, the uh, dynamic, you know, from when we open up in, you know, hopefully September um, for games and, you know, training camp in July. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of eyes on it. And, you know, certainly um, from the player standpoint, um, they have to be very careful in, in how they, you know, put that uh, out there in the world and in the media um, and owners as well. Um, you kind of need that intermediary there um, to guide this through and really come to an agreement that, um, you know, lets people realize, Hey, look, this is two groups of individuals coming together. Um, and basically saying, yeah, we're going to, we, we know we're going to lose revenue. We know people are going to get sick. Um, but you know, we have to work around and work past those things. So, you know, we can, you know, put games on and, and hopefully do it in a correct manner. Or just don't do it at all. And then just yeah. the last thing you want to do is get into a money squabble in this, with these current times and with what's going on in the world today. Also, and this has nothing to do with the economic side of things, but when I looked at that, at that, the new, basically the new bylaws for Major League Baseball of how are you going to play a Major League Baseball game in the midst of this coronavirus and COVID-19 and all of these rules that are in place where you literally, I mean, you can't spit. Whoever heard of playing a baseball game where you can't spit, you can't touch your face. If you're a third base coach, you, you can't, I mean, all of these things, including exercising the proper social distancing and the quarantine, I mean, it's just a minutia of all these things you can and cannot do. How, first of all, are they ever going to manage that? Like, who's going to see any of this stuff? How are they going to police all of that? And I guess my other thing is, and this isn't necessarily a question, and you don't necessarily have to have any feedback, Matt, but at what point, I guess, and I get it. I mean, there's a lot of money at stake here, right? We're talking billions of dollars. So I understand the pressure there financially. but. At what point do you not just step back and say, I mean, what are we doing here? We're going to go play in remote stadiums in either Arizona or Florida. People are going to be quarantined. There's all these rules in terms of where I can and cannot go. There's no fans are going to be at the stadium. At what point do you just say, this doesn't even resemble the sport that we all know and have grown to love Major League Baseball. This isn't even baseball anymore. This isn't even really look – at, look at our product. I mean, this is crazy. This isn't even – what I agreed to roll out there when I, when I bought a team and as a player, this isn't what you signed up to do. I, I'm wondering if they don't get to some point and just sort of step back and look at this product that they're eventually going to roll out in this short and condensed bizarre campaign and just say to themselves, you know what, we might just be better off like doing that at the NBA and just waiting and or not playing because this is just too weird. And it really isn't a reflection of the game. It doesn't even look like Major League Baseball anymore. No, no. I mean, you know, you have, you know, people, you know, wearing masks. I mean, I, I saw one report and it was a few weeks ago. It wasn't anything recent, you know, of some soccer, uh, you know, soccer leagues in Europe that, you know, were floating the idea of players wearing masks during games, the NBA doing the same thing. And obviously that shot down right away. And look, if you're, if you're asking players to wear masks during games, there's no reason they should be on the court um, from a health and safety standpoint, you know, period, you know, you watch the Korean baseball league and I've, I've seen some highlights of it. You know, you have coaches, um, they're wearing masks on the bench. Um, you know, certainly players are wearing masks that are that are not playing. They're in the stands. 
I watched a little bit. I don't mean to laugh, but how bad is it that we're getting to a point where we're watching the South Korean baseball league? Yeah, you know, you watch, yeah, I watched a little bit of the Bundesliga on, on Saturday and Sunday and, and clearly saw very similar stuff. You know, coaches six feet apart, you know, no celebrations, you know, players just kind of tapping their elbows against each other, um, you know, players in the stands wearing masks. I mean, you know, one, one obviously uh, revenue increase, you know, if, if fans can ever get back in the stadium is I'm sure – um, all these teams are going to be selling, you know, licensed masks with their emblem, you know, with their logos on it, um, you know, for, for fans when they, when they do come back, hopefully, um, or when they can be back, or, you know, even if they're just, you know, walking around the street, um, you know, but, you know, that goes to, you know, something that way, way down the road, but yeah, I, I just, you know, I don't see, you know, I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic about the NBA. Um, you know, that's, that's where I am. I, I just, I don't see it coming back. Um, you know, this year, I know, uh, you know, the commissioner, Adam Silver's had some, um, you know, recent uh, kind of statements that it's, you know, it, it, they're, they're pushing it and they obviously want to have something in place by June 1st. Um, I just see it, you know, as, as kind of a, you know, look, you know, maybe it's just their last gasp effort, effort to put something together um, for this year. Uh, Major League Baseball, you know, look, it, it didn't start. Um, you know, we didn't even get, you know, anything, you know, anything accomplished this year, you know, other than pitchers and catches reported in the spring training. Um, so, you know, I, I think, you know, for them, they're looking at it from a different perspective. They're not just trying to, you know, finish off the season. Um, you know, they're trying to, you know, play an entire season. Uh, so I think that's really, you know, a tough stretch there. And if, getting back to the, your thoughts on the NBA, as they continue to push that back, now you've got to start thinking about how this becomes so time-sensitive. Because if you start this thing, you know, if you get things rolling in late June and you still got to finish the regular season and you start pushing into, you know, August or, or end of July, then what do you do to start? Are you going to turn around and start playing and open up the season the following October, just, to, just a month and a half later? I mean, I think either you got to push back the, the 2020-21 season, the upcoming full basketball campaign, or you have to do something in, that's, that's highly reduced in terms of fitting in the rest of this regular season and getting the playoffs. But that's, that's, all, that's all in the air right now. And, and who knows? Who knows how any of this is going to resolve itself and who knows how any of this is going to play out in terms of this virus that continues to change our lives. The scheme, Maddie. Apparently, you finally saw the documentary of the death, and I'm not talking about the last dance. But you, did you see the scheme? And give me your thoughts. I did. I did. Um, I, I did watch it after after you gave me the heads up last week. And um, look, it's you know it's very realistic. Um, you know, uh, Christian Dawkins. You know, he's all over it. Obviously, um, you know the NBA. Look, the NBA is always always going to be the dirtiest um, game of of the four major sports in the U.S. You're talking about, you know, two rounds of the draft, 60 draft picks, you know, first round guaranteed contracts. There's so few guys, you know, um, that are actually getting paid. Um, and these, you know, look, AU coaches, um, they they have their hands out. You know, I've talked about this before. You know, uh, we've been in situations where families of players have asked, um, you know, for money, you know, while they're while their sons are in college, um, you know, with their hands out, AAU coaches, you know, they want $5,000 a month, $3,500 a month for meetings, um, you know, down the road in the future after the season ends, um, just for the meeting. It's not for signing the player. Um, you don't even know, you know, they could be getting 3,500 from, you know, five different agencies, um, you know, at that point, um, you know, people with their hands out, you know, 
and that's the NBA. Um, and we talked about this, the NBA player association made some adjustments to their agent rules recently uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, hopefully, you know, that sets right. Um, some of these wrongs, but you know, that's where it came from. It started with the shoe companies. Um, the shoe companies definitely played a huge role in this. Um, Nike and Adidas, that was the sneaker wars early on. Under Armour came in. Um, you know, we had a client that, uh, you know, was brought down to Under Armour when he was, before he even went to college and, you know, was, was given some, uh, some, I guess what you would say improper benefits, you know, by the, the, the CEO of Under Armour. Um, and you know, that's coming from the CEO of Under Armour. You know, we have, you know, I was introduced to a, a football player a couple of years ago who's now in the NFL, uh, who we don't represent. Um, you know, his first question to me, you know, when we were just kind of talking was, Hey, look, you know what, there's this guy from Nike that keeps hitting me up on Instagram about, you know, what do I have to pay you guys, you know, while I'm a sophomore in college to, to keep you in the Nike family once you're in the NFL. Um, you know, so those things are just, um, they're always going to be part of the game. They're always going to be that underbelly. That's always going to be there. And, um, I think the HBO documentary did a really good job of, of kind of examining it. financial advisors. Um, they're, they're not, you know, monitored or they're not, um, controlled by, um, the players associations, the way agents are. Um, obviously if look, if an agent screws up in Andy Miller's case, you know, he's going to get popped for it. Um, you know, that was, that was surprising. It doesn't happen very often, um, you know, that it's, that it becomes that public and um, that final. Um, so, you know, when that happened with Andy Miller um, and, you know, look, he's paid guys, he's stolen guys um, that, you know, that was, you know, one of his, that was just his business practice. Um, and that was a lot of people's business practices, um, you know, for a very long time. So that was, you know, that was part of the culture there. The documentary we're referring to is called The Scheme on HBO. And while the entire world, and rightfully so, watches The Last Dance, which I really enjoyed, but the scheme has to do with what you just laid out, the corruption of collegiate basketball, which we've always known for so much down at the AAU level. And it's seen through the perspective of this kid who just made me giggle. I, I shouldn't have been laughing out loud, but I thought him funny at times. His name's Christian Dawkins. He's a wannabe agent. He's a runner. And he was the guy that actually – the FBI wanted to use him to go after Rick Pitino. They wanted to go after some of the name. I mean, there's the head coach of the University of Arizona. Is it Sean Miller? I'm sorry? Sean Miller. Yep. Sean Miller, obviously, Will, on tape. Will Wade at LSU. Yep. Will Wade over at LSU. Yeah, and, he, and look, he's, and he's got him on tape, too. And that's, you know, and did, that's the crazy some, part. <laughs> will there not be another shoe that's going to drop from this? Because since this documentary has come out, both Sean Miller as well as Will Wade are – are clearly lying because <laughs> on these FBI tapes that it, it flies in complete contradiction to what they said in terms of their press conference. When they addressed the entire world about this very matter, they clearly lied. I, I'm wondering about their job security right now. Yeah. I mean, look, th that's, you know, th these guys have always, um, you know, been in those kind of situations, um, you know, with the middlemen, with the AU coaches, with the guys like Christian Dawkins, the guys that are financial advisors at some point that that switch over to the agent side. Um, I look, I don't understand how, you know, nothing has, has kind of dropped. I mean, I guess the FBI, you know, had some issues there with that one informant um, who, I don't know if he took some money or if he, you know, put some money in his pocket out, out, yeah, out in Vegas or something. Um, he, he disappeared and, um, talking you know, about the FBI agent, not the guy, the FBI agent, not, not the person they were investigating, but the FBI agent, 
himself was also yeah. corrupt. Yeah, he you know he was also corrupt. Um, so you know maybe maybe that's the reason. You know maybe there was some backroom stuff that went on, and and um, you know Sean Miller and Will Wade, you know were able to skip through, but, um, but certainly, you know, I don't get how, you know, guys like that. I mean, look, I, I've seen it in locker rooms. Um, I saw it down in Tennessee when Bruce Pearl was the coach there. Um, there's a reason he's not the coach there anymore. Um, you know, that was probably eight, you know, seven, eight years ago. Um, you know, he let boosters kind of run through that program. The university of Miami football, you know, had, had their issues, USC football, you know, with Reggie Bush, um, you know, having movie stars on campus and having, you know, agents, financial advisors, marketing reps all over the place. Um, you know, they kind of let these, he had a very laissez-faire hands-off approach with his players. Um, so it, look, this stuff happens. There was a really good quote in that, uh, in that documentary. I think it was by Jerry Tarkanian, you know, nine out of 10 teams oh, are cheating. And then the one that's not is in last place. <laughs> and it's just ironic. It's coming from Tarkanian because, you know, he was accused and, and, you know, eventually, you know, uh, confirmed that he was cheating. Um, you know, he, you know, UNLV, you know, back with Larry Johnson and those guys, the running rebels were, you know, were not exactly clean. Um, uh, so, you know, I, you know, he was honest about it though. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of what it was. Quick story. When I broke into this business of sports casting for CBS, I used to do on television, a CBS affiliate. I used to work with Jerry Tarkin, do the Jerry Tarkanian show. And him and his son, Danny Tarkini, and it was, yeah, it was, so he was one of the biggest characters I've ever met. In fact, I just went to, I went to his funeral in Las Vegas not long ago, but he is truly one of the characters in the, in the sport today. I'll give you a quick Jerry Tarkanian story that has nothing to do with anything. This is how, this is at Fresno State after he was out, you know, remember he got run out yeah, of UNLV. Yeah, he came back in, yep. Fresno State. When he would recruit at Fresno State, you know, typically <laughs> – you go into a kid's home, you meet mom and dad, mom cooks you a pie and you tell the kid to come to your school because you got good academics and we can get you, you know, we'll get you into the tournament and people are going to see you and we think you're a good kid. Come join our culture. What he would do with Danny Tarkinian, and I know because I went on one of these quote unquote recruiting trips, they would go and fly to New York City, right? <laughs> and they'd go to Rucker Park. You know Rucker Park? Yeah, up in Harlem. Harlem. Yep. And they'd go to Rucker Park and they would have literally these round trip tickets to Fresno, California. And this was back in the day when Rafer Alston and some of these kids that were running down, you know, Chris yeah. Heron, they, they were these guys who couldn't get into college. These guys that had talent, either got kicked out of college and they had and they were just they were just running game out at Rucker Park. And he would just go out there and he would just dole out these round trip tickets to Fresno as recruiting trips. Half of these kids would take the tickets and cash them in and go get booze. And then some of the kids would actually come out. I mean, it was the most bizarre sort of relationship in terms of Jerry Tarkanian. And these, they, they used to call it the University of Second Chance because there's all these kids who were just getting a second chance and recruited right out of Rucker Park. But I think that the documentary, what it does is it just sheds a light on the corruption that continues. But there's just got to be some sort of a fallout because this is all done by the Southern district of New York and they get their man. They have like a yeah. conviction rate of over like 95% or something like that. And here they are, they have the noose around Sean Miller as well as Will Wade out of LSU and they're going after Rick Bettina. They got all this stuff. And then suddenly they just put the brakes on and they're like, let's let, it's, it's almost as if somebody blew in Sean Miller's ear and said, Hey, listen, we're going to leave you alone. Just say this in a press conference. And, and they go after this, Poor, this, this poor tool, Kirsten Dawkins, who, who's the only guy who essentially gets, gets nailed in this thing. And they let all the big fish off the hook. So it's really yeah. sort of interesting 
in at the Southern District of New York, right in the middle of this thing, suddenly did an about phase and, and just sort of headed in the, in the other direction and went after these, these low-level guys, which really, you know, are really sort of inconsequential in terms of, of getting any sort of anything done in terms of stopping this corruption yeah. at the collegiate and, and even Yeah, and even like the Adidas sneaker guys, you know, the, the James Gattos, Jim Gattos, the world, um, you know, clearly they're getting instruction from bosses, you know, at Adidas or at Nike, you know, that stuff comes down, um, you know, from other people. They're just, you know, they're, they're obviously, they're obviously operating, you know, they've, they've worked in grassroots and AAU ball for years. Um, they understand how this system works, but clearly, um, you know, they're getting that, you know, they're getting orders from other people too. Um, so it's, it's definitely, you know, I don't understand how it just ended with Christian Dawkins going to jail and, you know, none of these guys, uh, Sean Miller, Will Wades, or, you know, any of the other coaches really, you know, taking the fall here, obviously Patino, you know, he had some issues even prior to this at Louisville, um, you know, and, and well, he didn't get busted because of this. That yeah, was, no, he had, he had plenty of, you know, from the hookers out in Louisville. Yeah. He had plenty of, I mean, they had plenty of ammunition to get, you know, to get him out of there, you know, even with this, um, you know, this was on top of it and, to go over to Greece, he's, he's coaching at Iona now. You know, he's 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 back coaching in college in college basketball now. Um, he yeah. took a little bit of a hiatus and he's he's back. You know, that's the collegiate game these days. Has it cleaned up? I mean, you talked about how there's new restrictions in place now in order to be an agent in the NBA. Is it no longer as nefarious as it once was? No, I don't think it is. No, I don't think it'll ever be. I think there's always going to be that underbelly, especially in college basketball. Um, you know. Like I said, there's just so much money, um, you know, at stake with these draft picks, sneaker companies, financial advisors, um, agents, you know, they're getting a lot of money. Um, these players are getting a lot of money, uh, you know, put in front of them at, at very young ages, 18, 19 years old. It's only going to get, they're only going to get younger because eventually they'll get rid of that one and done rule. Um, like we've talked about, but I, I don't think it'll ever, you know, be completely, completely gone. Um, there's just too much money at stake and people are going to put their hands out. They're going to try to figure out ways to get in front of these players, whether it's an AU coach, you know, like I've said, you know, I've, I've, you know, barbers have called me, um, you know, guidance counselors, you know, they all, you know, feel like, all right, look, I had a, I had a role in this player's life or this young man's life um, since I've known him since he's 12 years old. Um, yeah, sure. I, I want to get, you know, compensated for, for having that involvement. Um, and it's unfortunate that, you know, people are doing that to, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds because um, they're not getting, you know, the players aren't getting the right deal. Um, they're not getting in front, you know, put in front of the right people. And, you know, that, that is really unfortunate. Um, so I think that'll always be there in the NBA. Um, unless there are some some major, you know, look if they're if they're starting to make it federal crimes, maybe that scares some people off. And before you feel sorry for this kid, Christian Dawkins, who becomes the fall guy, actually, this Christian Dawkins kid, he had some strong relationships with some oh, of these yeah. players who were willing to go to bat for him that made it to the NBA. <laughs> before you feel sorry for this guy, who took the fall? Sean Miller, Rick Pitino. The, the, the Will Wade over at LSU, they go unscathed. All the big names in this, this, poor, this poor kid, he's still in his early 20s, he becomes the fall guy. But as <laughs> the document plays out, you realize that this kid, wasn't it while he was like in the middle of one of his – during his trial, he was running across the street? And yeah, off town for, for meetings with a music, music exec, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know. He's a hell of an well, operator. I'll tell you that. Sure. Good for him, man. I mean, hey, listen, 
I, I don't promote necessarily what he was doing. And even he would say in the middle of his documentary, he's like, why are these, why are these idiots, this, this bogus marketing sort of firm that the <laughs> FBI had created, why are they giving me money? That's not how it works. And so he was even telling the coaches, they're like, they want me to give the, they want me to give you guys money. I don't know why. And it was just, it was so poorly done on the part of the FBI. Anyways, we'll leave some of it. Uh, for you guys to view and enjoy out there. It's called The Scheme, once again, on HBO. And uh, it's, it's not only entertaining, but obviously hits right at home in terms of what we've been talking about. And that, of course, in our last show about players taking a step closer at the collegiate level on the NCAA and getting paid, and now at least getting reciprocated, or at least getting uh, compensated, I should say, for their likeness and their images in terms of marketing and some, some money coming their way. But we'll leave it for there. Maddie, and we'll, we'll rejoin and reconvene next week and talk some more sports and business with that head-on collision in life. But until then, from California out here on the West Coast, this is Dan Avone from Maddie Marino out in New York saying, give them the sports biz, and until next time, so long, everybody. See you, Dan. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.